Vienna, a beautiful and ancient European city and capital of Austria. It's the home of artists, Sigmund Freud, and it's where Beethoven and Mozart wrote some of their most famous works. And where pop stars wrote some of their catchiest tunes. You recognize this song, don't you? Its composer, the late Falco, also a Vienna native. He wrote it about Mozart. Falco was also a huge soccer fan. His favorite team? I am an old Austrian. It can be easy to say when you have a three-quarter hour but it is spring and there is a football game. In this interview, he said his favorite team was FK Austria Vienna, and their most legendary player was nicknamed the Mozart of football, also the paper man. His real name? Matthias Schindler. And he made his team and his nation one of the most formidable forces in world football. And then in January 1939, he died suddenly. My name is David James Roberts, and this is The Ultimate. The life, death, and legacy of Matthias Schindler. It's spring, 1938. Adolf Hitler, the dictator of Germany for the last five years. Since coming to power, he had his sights set on unifying Germany and Austria, the country of his birth. Ultimately, he achieved his goal. Hundreds of people gathered in the square in front of the royal palace to witness the Fuhrer sign the treaty making Germany and Austria one nation. This Volk never wanted to be separated from the Reich. The instant that its mission as leader of the peoples of the Reich was rendered obsolete, the voice of its blood spoke out. After the 1918 collapse, German Austria desired to return to the Reich immediately. The democratic world prevented the Anschluss of German Austria. Now the Volk has turned against this world. As the banner of National Socialism rose in Germany, the people here as well began to increasingly look to this symbol. In their hearts, hundreds of thousands pledged their allegiance. Before the outbreak of the First World War, Hitler was a struggling artist on the streets of Vienna. He failed to get into the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts twice. The professors in charge of admission described his work as having, quote, no artistic value. To earn money, 
He painted postcards and sold them on the streets of Vienna. One of his fans who bought several of his works was an Austrian businessman named Samuel Morgenstern, who was also Jewish. But when the war started, Hitler enlisted in the German army after being rejected by the Austrian army. He achieved the rank of corporal, and he fought in some of the fiercest and bloodiest battles of the Great War, including the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, the Second Battle of Ypres, and the Battle of the Somme. Upon war's end, Germany and Austria were defeated. Forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles, in which Germany accepted blame for the start of the war, the nation also had to pay reparations to the victors. Because of this, hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. The currency saw massive inflation, and many people wanted someone to blame. One of those people was Adolf Hitler. He joined a far-right political party called the German Workers' Party. This party believed in a conspiracy theory that the Jewish people were behind the conditions set forth in the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler soon rose through the ranks of this party and changed its name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or Nazi Party for short. This party preached an extreme form of fascism that was rooted in anti-Semitism. The rise of Hitler and other Nazis through the ranks of the German parliament is widely known and widely documented, so I won't go into it here. However, once he took power, he set sights on expanding Germany's borders. And the first victim? His native Austria. The Austrian government at this time was facing its own set of turmoil. There were many attempted coup d'etats an attempted communist revolution and acts of terrorism from anarchists. Ultimately, a fascist took power named Engelbert Dolfus. Unlike Hitler to the north and Mussolini to the south, Dolfus had his own form of fascism called Austrofascism. He ruled only for two years before being assassinated by members of the Austrian Nazi party. His successor, Kurt Schosnick, struggled to keep his government together. Adolf Hitler issued a trade embargo on Austria and even issued a 5,000 mark tax on anyone who traveled to Austria for either business or pleasure. The German Nazis also engaged in a massive propaganda campaign to garner support for a united Austria and Germany. Schosnig ultimately caved to the pressure from Berlin and authorized a plebiscite vote, allowing the Austrian people to choose whether or not to join with Germany. On lampposts and kiosks in cities across Austria were posters with Hitler's face on it. Written at the bottom was the word Ja, encouraging people to vote for unification. According to numerous reports, the vote was anything but a fair election. There were reports of Nazi party officials stuffing ballot boxes, intimidation of voters at the polls, 
Nazi officials tossing out ballots for people who voted no, and even reports of people receiving ballots with only one option on it. The final tally saw more than 90% of voters choosing for unification with Germany. Almost immediately following the announcement, the barrier at the border between the two nations was removed. The German army made its way to Vienna. The German army were greeted by many people holding flowers, their arms raised in the Nazi salute, and cheering them as liberating heroes. To celebrate this achievement, a soccer game was staged in Vienna between the German national team and the Austrian national team. It was to be the last time the Austrian team took to the pitch, and then both teams would play as a combined team under the swastika. According to legend, Matthias did not want to play in the match, not only because the game was supposed to end in a predetermined nil-nil tie, but also because of his supposed objections to the Nazi regime. There are many myths about the game and what happened in the lead-up to kickoff. One legend is that the Nazis insisted on the Austrians wearing a uniform other than their usual black and white jersey. Supposedly, Matthias talked the team into wearing their traditional kits. Throughout the first half, Schindler seemingly dominated the game. He teased the Germans with his cunning skills and genius tactics. He consistently had chances to score, but each time he missed the goal by mere inches. Was he just teasing the Germans? Or was he following orders? We may never truly know. But the Nazi dignitaries in attendance did not show any distress over how the first half ended. So far, things were going exactly to plan. When the second half started, Matthias was playing like a caged lion unleashed. His contemporaries described the man they saw on the field as a player determined to take the Wunder team on his back and prove that they were truly the world's greatest team. Midway through the half, the ball bounced off of a rebound directly to his feet. He swung his glorious right leg back and kicked the ball past the German goalkeeper and into the back of the net. The crowd erupted like there was a swell of joy just waiting in their collective throats. Arms raised in triumph, glee, and unfettered jubilation. Then a few minutes later, his teammate Carl Sesta found an opening and secured an Austrian victory when he scored the game's second goal. Because there is no film footage of this game, I imagined in my novel, The Paper Man, published by Blue Forge Press, how this moment probably went. Unable to contain himself, Matthias jumped up and down in sheer, unadulterated jubilation and excitement. He ran across the entirety of the field until he was directly in front of where the Nazi dignitaries were seated. He held one arm out to his side and extended the other across his chest and began to waltz. Dancing with all of Austria as his partner, he made the gesture in defiant mockery of his nation's new leaders. 
As if that was not enough, the crowd began to sing the tune of their beloved Danube waltz, guiding Matthias's steps. They sang together in glorious union. Fans in the stands wrapped their arms around each other and danced, bobbing back and forth to the rhythm of the iconic Viennese melody as they sang out with increasing gusto and exaggerated flourishes. The singing and dancing soon gave way to the chant of Osterreich, Osterreich, over and over, louder and louder. It was a symbolic moment, for the crowd was now truly recognizing that their political identity might now be wholly German, but as a people, they were still Austrian. The next day, the newspapers ran the headline, Our Team Won. But the German Ministry of Sport completely dissolved the Austrian national team and sought to bring in the best players to play for the German national team. This merged team would represent the Third Reich at the 1938 World Cup in France. One of the players the Nazis wanted to bring in was Matthias Schindler, but he refused. He soon retired from professional football and purchased a coffee shop from a Jewish acquaintance named Leopold Drill. According to Nazi-era law, Schindler did not have to pay full price for the establishment. But legend has it that Schindler paid more than full price. The shop was an instant success, with patrons lining up around the block, waiting to catch a glimpse of their sporting hero. In France that year, this combined Austrian-German team was knocked out early in the tournament. And that winter, he met and fell in love with an owner of a Vienna-based inn. Her name was Camilla Castanola. Their romance can best be described as a whirlwind. January 1939. Matthias had just finished a game of poker with some friends, and he went to Camilla's apartment. It was a cold night, and she had the heater running. The next morning, the couple was found in bed lifeless. Coming up in episode 3 of The Ultimate, where the myth of Matthias Schindler's death ends and the truth begins. The Ultimate the life, death, and legacy of Matthias Schindler is written, edited, and produced by me, David James Roberts. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the wonderful support of my amazing wife, Christina Roberts. Special thanks to Professor Kevin Simpson, Mario Sonberger, Clemens Zavareski, Georg Spitteller, and the good people at FK Austria Vienna, and so many other people I don't have time to mention here. Please remember, if you like this podcast, please leave a review. Share it on your preferred social media platform. Your help really goes a long way. The Ultimate 
The life, death, and legacy of Matthias Schindelar is powered by Acast. See you next time.